Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Siska. Today we feature a discussion with Dan Cooper, who is the Director of Research at the Metropolitan Planning Council. The discussion with Dan focuses on a website he helped create a few years ago with Ryan Lugalia Holland and the technologists at DataMade. The website, Chicago's Million Dollar Blocks, is a fascinating exploration of how much money we spend on incarcerating people by block in Chicago. I strongly recommend you spend some time on the website learning about the grotesque amount of money that we, as a state, spend not on feeding, housing, or educating people from these very blocks, but on removing and incarcerating people. It will definitely change your perspective to hearing a local politician say, we just don't have the resources to do that. But first, the news. On Friday, it was a popular day in Chicago for information and interviews with David Brown, former, I should say, new current superintendent of Chicago Police Department. On Friday, Jeremy Gorner from the Tribune sat down with Brown for an interview and continues the Chicago media streak of ignoring the allegations against Brown from his time in Dallas. What kind of integrity can there be in the journalists in Chicago that cover crime and violence? that they have let numerous interview opportunities go by without asking Brown about the allegations that challenge his integrity. You would think it would be the first question you make him answer. On that same day, Ben Bradley from WGN-TV ran a story about Brown talking about more cops being in uniform, with a doozy of a quote from Brown. We don't see police enough. Likely more people will be front-facing in the department. I like cops in uniform, in marked cars, and there's no secret They're the police. I'm less inclined to see specialized officers in plain clothes, in unmarked cars, or leased cars. Would have been nice if Bradley asked them, what research from around the country has shown you that that works, that has proven that that works? Is that evidence-based, or is this just you conjuring something up from Dallas? Obviously, those questions were not asked. This is not a crime-fighting tactic from the 21st century, that's for sure. Brown, obviously, has not been brought in to be innovative. He certainly seems like he's falling prey to policing in the same era as former police superintendent Gary McCarthy. McCarthy came up in New York City during the 1990s era that Brown was coming up in Dallas. They both fallen prey to plunging crime statistics that most likely had very little to do with the policing tactics of their local police agencies. They used correlation between the policing tactics and the crime drop to assume that tactics of their individual agencies were the reason for the drop. From the early 1990s until about 2015, the violent crime dropped around the country about 3-4% to per year in just about every jurisdiction. Every police leader in America was taking credit for crime drops they probably had very little to do with. This had the effect of causing the officers in each department to believe the policies of their department were the cause. Thus, we get... Police leaders like McCarthy and Brown are committed to a way of policing that is based on correlation rather than causation. Sadly, this is going to be Chicago's second go at old school policing tactics that didn't work the first time and are certainly going to fail the second time. As I said in previous episodes, it's time to start the clock on Brown's tenure. You will note neither reporter, Gorner or Bradley, like all the reporters in Chicago, still have not asked a single question to Brown about the long-standing allegations against Brown for killing crime through manipulating crime statistics in Dallas. If you want to delve deeper into what the Chicago media is ignoring about Brown's time in Dallas, you can find our Facebook Live interview with Steve Rhodes from the Beachwood Reporter on our Facebook page. 
You can also find an edited version of the video on our YouTube channel, and you can find an audio version of that same discussion in a previous episode of this podcast. We now turn to our discussion with Dan Cooper. You can find that amazing website we discussed in this episode at chicagosmilliondollarblocks.com. Now we turn to Dan. All right, so let's let's give an introduction, a little more detailed introduction about you. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your what research you've been doing so they get a little bit of the context. Sure. Uh, currently in my role right now at Metropolitan Planning Council, we look at urban planning issues and how they intersect um, and what that means for the Chicago region. We haven't typically worked on justice center, I'm sorry, justice system issues. And it's one thing I've been trying to do in my role is figuring out uh, just how the justice system is driving all the trends we care about in Chicago. Um, prior to that and how I met Tracy and got involved uh, with him in building this website is uh, I directed a, a center at Adler University that was really um, similarly just trying to understand um, how our justice system was impacting uh, health and wellness in our communities and uh, how we could organize for something different. So. We had created this site because we were fans of the, the Million Dollar Blocks project that was uh, um, that came out of New York. Uh, Laura Kurgan and Eric Adora built that for New York, and we had wanted to do something similar just as a fun project to try to change hearts and minds in Chicago. And uh, thanks to the hard work of Tracy, we had finally gotten hold of some data to be able to, to build that site. And so we used that in our um, work with community groups who are organizing on justice system issues. We, you know, test, testified in uh, various spaces uh, on justice system reform. So it was a really good piece of uh, public narrative change. And in my current role, I'm hoping to do more of that. Um, but it, I've gotten away from the justice system a little bit, but now with COVID-19 and how important uh, or center, central of a role that jails and prisons are playing, it's, it's more relevant now than ever. It is. We just, our guest last week on the live stream was Joby Cates from Reform Justice Illinois and talking about the Illinois Department of Corrections, their data issues and their response to COVID and the fact that they, at least up to that point, advocates couldn't and families couldn't really understand who they were releasing or the amount and what they were releasing them for. That's a whole nother issue, but yeah, it's very important. So we got to, so what was the takeaway message that you wanted people who viewed your site to take, take with them? Yeah, I think the, the number one thing we wanted people to see is just how costly the justice system is. I mean, forget for a moment uh, the moral and ethical problems with mass incarceration and how it disproportionately impacts people of color. Setting that aside, even though I think that's the most important thing, it is so costly. And in an era, you know, we had come out of the Great Recession 10 years ago talking about government, governments are broke. We're spending too much money. There's no money anywhere for anything. Uh, meanwhile, we had this system, uh, a failing system of, that you know, does not rehabilitate people. Where we're spending you know, billions uh, every year, and you know, we wanted people to see that and recognize that and to think differently about the justice system. What role, and I've always been curious about this, to be honest with you, is what role do you think urban planning played in creating the circumstances that you know, resulted in the just massive incarceration rates we have, especially in, in communities of color? That's a really interesting question. I think, you know, Ryan Lugalia Holland and I, who, who uh, co-built the site and uh, wrote a book together, we came from an urban planning background. And I think 
from our perspective, from planning theory to practice, it, there was kind of, you know, a wholesale ignoring of justice system. Um, there, were, there were no classes we could take. There were very few urban planners we knew thinking about it. Um, I think part of the problem is they saw criminal justice as the province of policing and, and those professionals, and it was ignored, right? We looked at housing issues uh, in isolation. We looked at uh, workforce development, employment, economic development issues in isolation. And I think part of the reason we were drawn to this work is because we saw a major gap there. And we, we thought, there's no way you can talk about neighborhoods and urban space without talking about the footprint of the criminal justice system. So I think, if anything, from my perspective, uh, urban planning has ignored the justice system. And I think, as a result, is constantly facing issues such as housing unaffordability. And, and without talking about these major drivers, the fact that there are single parent households because one parent is locked up um, or people come out of prison and can't get a job and then struggle with housing. That was a big problem. So I think, you know, planning has been a vacuum when it comes to the justice system. And I think more and more that's changing. I, I view from a criminological side, I went back to grad school to get my master's in the early 2000s, early mid 2000s. There were all kinds of, it was the, it was the like, the internet had been around about 10 years and it was this availability of criminal justice data that started happening. From a criminologist's view, I, I view the role of urban planning almost to be a negative because I should say not the role, but their impact is a negative because you, you're looking, you can find them all over the internet, all these real estate uh, websites and apps, they talk, they, they talk about crime and they're able to use, to give a statistic. And I've always, without the context needed, because if you're not comparing it across and you're not looking at a whole host of factors, the individual statistic could be completely irrelevant or it could be you completely misconstrued. So I've always viewed it to some degree as a negative because limited, I've seen urban planners take it into account. They've taken it into, well, how is crime going to affect my house sale, the price of my house or the rent? So that's from a chronological view, that's how I look at it. I also, I think I want you to talk a little bit about, it's, it's this, you know, it's an academic term, but I think it really applies. It's like this intersectionality. Nobody, and, I, and maybe from an urban planner role, you can look at it, but they don't look at the cost of things long-term to their communities, mm-hmm. right? The more people you arrest and take out of that community, the poorer the community is going to be, the less stable it's going to be, all inviting crime and violence to rise. Or if you take a kid off a corner for a drug arrest, it just, to a certain extent, that arrest is just assuring that that kid, when he gets out, is going to be right back on that corner, right? So do you see that intersectionality the way I do? Absolutely. And, you know, just, just to return to your point again, I think, I think you made a good point. When I said urban planning has ignored it, I think it's true. I think your point about urban planning being part of the problem is also true. And I, I kind of identify the fact that we've all given into market messages about uh, neighborhoods, right? Starting in the 1980s, around the time we started locking up people, we started caring more and more about housing as the primary source of wealth and value. And the market is inherently racist, right? Pricing houses in black neighborhoods lower than white neighborhoods, for example. And so the more we sort of orient our future around what the real estate market is saying about neighborhoods, the more we're just reinforcing those, those existing uh, inequalities that are driven by the justice system. So, so I think your point was a fair one. The more we 
we say, hey, well, if neighborhoods here are, are bad, uh, there's not investment there because there's crime, you know, the more we're reinforcing the problem and then leading to your second point about this vicious cycle, it's absolutely right. You know, once you're removing people from a home, you're causing instability. That in turn leads to neighborhood instability, which affects um, all sorts of things like more crime. Uh, so I think, you know, for me, the more I've studied this, the more I've come around to the fact that the criminal justice system is one of the biggest culprits of sending neighborhoods and families on a downward path. I completely agree. And I, I, I kind of have also, we'll get back to the website, we've gone down a different direction here, but I do want to talk about it a little bit. I, I'm all for, you know, they talk about job training and, and re-entry, and I'm 100% all for that. But I, I think we don't do enough about making sure people don't end up in the system, right? Like, I think uh, intersectionality, the, the way to, part of the way of fixing our schools when people talk about our schools need help is employing the parents and stabilizing their households and stabilizing their communities and uplifting them. I, I think if you do that, you're going to see massive changes in education and education outcomes. I think all of that is linked and we, we just don't talk about that to any degree we, we possibly can. We fund them as separate issues. For some reason, there's always seems to be money for criminal justice stuff. Yeah, fair point. Uh, and I agree. I think, you know, reentry is obviously important because there's already a lot of people in prison. But once you make that the primary focus, you've already lost, right? Because no matter how much you can work with someone through programs once they're out of prison, they're still at such a huge disadvantage. Their career earnings are going to be less. They're, they're going to have probably family issues, issues with children, a co-parent, all sorts of challenges. And so the vision really should be, and we point this out in the final chapter of our book, getting to no entry neighborhoods, right? Where you're not sending anyone to prison um, because there's all sorts of ways you could be thinking about every offense. Um, I think it, the conversation gets tougher when you think about serious offenses and uh, we can talk about that later, but I think in general, a, a good uh, vision is to try to think about how do we get to not sending anyone to prison? So we're not spending that that time on them, that money on them. Uh, we can find more cost-effective and better solutions. You know, it's the pol politics of fear. We can't possibly defund or reduce the funding of the police department. I'm not for defunding them completely, but reducing their that amount of money. It's always about hiring more cops because for some reason that makes us safer. Uh, it's incredibly hard and I fought against it before Ron did that thousand man hire and I'm still fighting against it around that and trying to open up why that's happened. But there's politicians say, we're broke, we're broke, we're broke, we can't do anything. Oh, we wanna hire a thousand more cops, there you go. We got that money, we'll find a way, we'll go into debt for that. And I, I just don't think it makes us safer. I'm going to uh, switch back to the website and talk about, so the Chicago Justice Project has a connection to your million dollar block site. We fought, we, we, we um, engaged Chief Judge Timothy Evans of the Cook County Courts to open criminal court data in Cook County. And we were looking at an original engagement, still are through today, is to open up all of their criminal court data from the time they started collecting it through today and with updates. That said, we were able to open up a five-year set. Obviously, we opened it. What gave you the thought about using it and how did you guys use it to create this site? Yeah, so, uh... Ryan Lugalia Holland, my colleague, who at the time was working with me at Adler, you know, we were just big fans of that Million Dollar Blocks project and thought, hey, they, you know, they haven't done that in Chicago. No one's done that in Chicago. 
It's a really effective framing. And so we had been working to try to get a hold of data. Uh, we're not successful. You know, we went through the usual channels of, you know, writing to people, making calls, requesting it, and it just was impossible to get. So it, it always remained an ambition of what we wanted to do because we thought that would be good public education. So I, once, once you were able to get a hold of the data through your, your efforts and, and fights, we, you know, we were sort of already gearing up to do this. And the timing uh, at the time in 2015, was it 2015? I'm already forgetting. I think so. Was right uh, because the Bruce Rauner, our governor, who's a Republican, um, had convened a task force on sentencing reform. So it was kind of this bipartisan moment where Republicans and Democrats were working together to think about ways they could reduce reliance in the criminal justice system. So it felt like a no-brainer kind of time to try to weigh in and really, you know, make a splash, generate some public interest in the topic from a different way. And so. We were able to do that uh, by partnering with with DataMade, uh, this data civic tech company that, that mm -hmm. builds websites like this. Um, they are also researchers and similarly interested in, in data and much smarter than me in terms of building websites on the back end. We partnered with them to get this turned into a website uh, and wrote some messaging. And so it was just a, a fun collaboration with really smart people. So all down the line, you know, Chicago Justice Project getting a hold of this data. Um, sharing it with us so we could build this website and then getting messaging out and trying to, you know, push it out and get people talking about it. And so it, it did make a little bit of a, a splash around the time. And I think because of it, it was harder for, um, you know, the sentencing commission to ignore us. So they invited me to testify um, about, you know, what we see are the, the best avenues for criminal justice system reform. So I mean, in, in the end, can we claim that we changed the world with this website? No, not necessarily. But I think, you know, it's a small uh, part of a moving uh, snow, a snowball moving down a hill, collecting momentum. More people were, we heard more people start to use this language. The Cook County Board President, Tony Preckwinkle, was often citing from the website when she'd give speeches about criminal justice system reform. Uh, so we knew it's impactful because it sticks. It's, it's visually appealing. There are very um, nice sound bites about the criminal justice system that people can remember and use in their advocacy efforts. Yeah, one question. I'm going to have you give us a little tour in a minute of the website, but I noticed, I, like I was going through it the last few days, and I noticed in your notes, or in the about part, that you, in your model for the data, you, for the drug offenses, it is free of anyone that committed, is committed a violent offense. So they're all nonviolent offenders. One, why did you do that? And technically, like, how is that? Does that mean no one's committed violence in the past or that just they're not one of the other charges that are currently incarcerated is in violence? What is, how did, how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, we had the simplest possible method um, where I think we looked at, we looked at unduplicated counts and we looked at the sentence and we took this, the top line sentence, the, the lengthiest sentence and what it was for. So in other words, if somebody had a discharge for a drug offense and a violent offense, we took the violent offense. I think if I remember right, I'd have to double check, but essentially we wanted to break it up into violent and nonviolent. So people could, or in drugs, so people could see that there are a lot of sentences that are just no brainers. You know, when you ask people on the street, should people be locked up for a violent crime? Often the reaction is probably going to be yes, because we're just programmed to think violent crime, yeah, they need to be locked up dangerous. But when you ask people, what about a drug offense? You, you 
you don't often see people saying yes, lock them up because frankly, everybody knows somebody who's committed a drug offense uh, probably in the last week, you know? So, <laughs> uh, so I think, uh, you know, we wanted to point out just how much uh, or what percentage or share of the, the people being sentenced to prison were for drug offenses. And certainly these are, a lot of them are drug sales, but they're not massive amounts. And there are reasons people are selling drugs and in a place like Austin on the West side is because there are fewer opportunities. Uh, and because you've locked up generations of people who are coming out and are unable to get jobs. And so we wanted to make that point as well. So it just doesn't make sense to be putting people in for, for drug offenses. Okay, I have one more before we get to the tour. And that is, there seems to be this political, politicalization, if I pronounce that anywhere near correctly, of the term nonviolent and what that means in Chicago. With bond reform, they have a version of how they define it. I think which is more, I think which is, there isn't a violent offense included in what they're currently, have been currently arrested for and charged with, right? And will spend time or what they're getting bail on. And then there's this other side, Mayor Lightfoot's in part of it, the media is part of it. And I, I call them like fringe political operations, crime in Wrigleyville blog, Second City Cop, City Line, Chicago City Line or something like that all these fringe websites who are like anyone who's committed any violent crime ever in their life, they're a violent criminal, no matter what they're arrested for. So let's just take someone aggravated battery or armed robbery or even a murder. If after they get out and they serve their time, they are then rearrested for two ounces of pot or whatever, a gram of cocaine or whatever it be, whatever the drug du jour is right now, that is a violent criminal. What are your thoughts on that whole debate that's being egged on by the media, I would say? Yeah, it's a, it has been a problematic third rail where you know people are expected to say, oh, I don't wanna be lenient on violent offenses. You're absolutely right. But what the data show, you know, I, there are problems with risk assessment tools, but we won't get into that now. But you know, when you look at a, violent offenders, the likelihood of reoffending is often lower for violent offenders, particularly somebody who's convicted of a murder and who is older. Like those are some of the lowest reoffense rates. Again, I'm not arguing that no one should be locked up for murder necessarily, but there is this sticky political third rail where everybody feels like they have to say, get tough on violent offenses. And it's because they're so easy to beat up on in the kind of Willie Horton way. You can easily find one person who was let out, whether they were let out early or served their full offense, who then went on to recommit a terrible offense. And those that messaging is really effective. We saw that in the uh, 1988 presidential election, right? About uh, the person in New York who was let out in early release and committed a murder, other crimes. But that's not the norm, right? There are many violent offenses, assault, certainly one of them, where you don't necessarily have to have major concern for people reoffending. So I think it's, it's a hard thing to challenge because it's so ingrained. You can always find a case of somebody committing a terrible offense after they've committed one in the past. Uh, and you focus on that. You know, I think as a country, we're not a nuanced country. We divert to the simple reductionist if X, then Y. And I think this is one of those sticky things that we just need to get out, get out from under. I see it also. I'm not sure if this last week you saw 
or at the end of last week, the uh, article around bail, the bail project and the Chicago bond front from the Tribune, Chicago Justice Project on its YouTube channel has a, excuse me, has our take on that video. But I wanna hear your take on that, I mean, on, on that article, and also this idea around just possessing a gun, whether you're a felon with a gun or just someone arrested who's never been arrested before with a gun, them being treated as violent. Because I know that's something the mayor is pushing huge for, is everyone caught with a gun has to be treated as a violent criminal. And I, I find that kind of unsettling that we're somehow getting away from the official definitions of things that are long established in the country and having political influence over those definitions. So I just want your thoughts. Gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> I'll try to we be- We got some time. Don't worry about it. it. They're both great examples of, of why we're in this quandary with mass incarceration and we just can't get out of it is because of misguided work like the Tribune article and misguided policies like this gun offender, these gun offender policies that are, you know, are, are being pushed. So first one, the article, I think you've already covered it on your website in terms of what's problematic. So I won't go in depth and just encourage people to look at it. But what sticks out to me just high level is it's, it would never pass the muster of any kind of research uh, where peer reviewers are looking at it and calling out problematic things. They looked at potentially half the cases that the Chicago Community Bond Fund bailed out. I think identified 162. The bond fund says they bailed out 300 plus. And they, they identified 20% of those cases as someone had reoffended. And they focused on that. They told the stories. They interviewed people and said, how do you feel that a charity bailed out this person, right? A very misleading, or, or I'm sorry, a leading question. And so the whole article is based on uh, shoddy uh, research. So they told us 20% of offenses. We need to know what percentage of people who come out of the jail in general reoffend because we know that people reoffend, right? So are they any more likely than, than average? But that isn't even the most problematic aspect. The, the problem is these people, according to law, are allowed to be, to make bail. Uh, that's their constitutional right. And so, so a charity, somebody else, or people, individual donors have decided they want their money to go to this, have helped bail them out. They're following the law, right? I, I just, I don't understand how anyone could, could suggest that they would rather have someone in behind bars who's able to get out simply because they can't afford it, right? So I guess if you go down that road, then you say, I'm only okay with poor people staying in jail, right? So I, I think it's, it's work like that, that that raises people's fear. You, you read the headlines, if that's all you do, and you think that people who get bailed out are violent and will commit more offenses. Um, I think it pushes a terrible conclusion, which is more punishment more harsh treatment is necessary. And I think that's, it's not based on actual research. And it's also, as from a human rights perspective, is ridiculous to suggest that poor people shouldn't be allowed to, to make bail, right? Um, so then to the second point about guns, I think what you often hear is, we need to get tough on anyone caught with a gun because those are our shooters, right? We know that you're more likely to be involved in a shooting, shoot someone, if you have a gun. Well, of course that's true, right? You're more likely to smoke cigarettes if you own a cigarette, right? <laughs> or if you purchase them or, you know, or any other, that's probably a terrible analogy. But um, so they, 
you know, we're not looking at what alternatives are and why people are choosing to own guns in the first place. Um, people don't feel safe in their neighborhoods. They don't feel that police will protect them. Um, there are a lot of reasons, uh, including probably young people, you know, in some fashion or another, maybe wanting to follow the crowd. There, there are a number of reasons why people might own a gun. All of them not good, but we should be focusing on getting them to not own a gun, right? Locking them up is not gonna help because we're just gonna be funneling more people into the justice system. They're gonna get out. A gun offense isn't gonna keep them in prison their entire life. They'll get out and then they're worse off than before. So why aren't we diverting to, to better ways of handling someone who gets caught for a gun or treating the root cause of the problem rather than the symptom? Yeah, to me, it seems like it's a, especially early on in the Lightfoot administration, that's supposed to be so different and reform and not the machine and we're gonna do things different. And she's worked at Office of Professional Standards that eventually became IPRA and she was involved in the police board. I think I was kind of, I was really disappointed to see her be the really pro lock them up because that was kind of a white flag, like nothing different's coming, right? Nothing different is going to come about this. In fact, what I'm going to do is we're going to make the police department even stricter. We're going to make their oversight stricter and the impact of the criminal justice system on these communities worse, not try to dial it back or find alternatives. Uh, I was kind of bothered by that, especially coming out of the Lightfoot. The article itself is kind of offensive. Just real quick, I, I, I don't understand. Like, it seemed to me the only way you write that article is if you go in saying, it is not right for people to be bailed out, for people to be bailed out. I've always said that academic, rigorous academic research is so much better than most journalism. I, I wish, like, I think all crime reporters and all reporters that are use data, but specifically crime and violence reporters, would have to take some methodology classes, quantitative methodology from in their leading academic institution so they can understand what it means to do data and what represent it and what it means. I also liked how they, they said some like one of the arrests, one of the reoffenders was arrested for trafficking in drugs. What's trafficking? Was that, did he get caught with 500 pounds of weed or 10 kilos of coke? Was he meeting with El Chapo? Like, I don't, what's trafficking? Or did he just go to do a delivery? Cause I gotta tell you, I'm in DC now. There are like five guys riding bikes around this neighborhood amidst a pandemic, pretty much 24 hours a day. And I have to see drug sales all the time, routinely. I'm sure they're low level. Is that trafficking? <laughs> Like, I don't understand. These reporters have to know people that use drugs. Are the people that I'm buying them from trafficking? I just thought that was another loaded term that showed you their ideology that was built into the article. Yeah, it was, it was a, a one-sided piece that had no nuance. And, you know, it, imagine, you know, taking a poll of uh, a certain percentage of journalists and saying, uh, well, we found that five out of six go to the bar after work so the whole article will be about, you know, a huge percentage of journalists are alcoholics, you know, or something like that would be equally shoddy. And, you know, the, the point would be not supported by the evidence, right? No, that was a, in my, I call them hit pieces. That to me seemed like a hit piece. Clearly. They either, either it was a hundred percent a hit piece or they tried to do real research and all they could find was 162 cases. And they were like, wow, if we don't publish, then we have to explain to our bosses why we spent all that time, so we're just gonna get it out. Either way, it's not good. Okay, let's get back to this beautiful website. 
Mr. Cooper, could you uh, show us the website and give us a little tour about some of the things your, uh, some of the analysis your website shows for public? Sure. Can you see it now? No, but I got it up. Can you see my screen? Yep. Perfect. All right. Wonderful. All right. Sorry for my technologically challenged self, but um, so, you know, what's, what we wanted to get out of this is something that's very brief um, because people's attention isn't captured at a website for uh, all that long. Um, we found the average person who came to this site, um, I think, was here about three or four minutes. Um, so you think about that being the reality of a website, um, it doesn't leave a lot of room for um, tons and tons of, of text in there. So, um, the main thing is, is just a searchable website uh, where you can, if you zoom out, you'll see offenses by community area. It'll aggregate up. Um, in Chicago, we've got 77 defined community areas that people know and recognize. So people know I live in uh, Edgewater. I just want to know the numbers for my community. And so it allows people to hover over there and you can see the total cost in a community for um, prison sentences over a five-year period. And this is the life of those sentences, assuming that folks serve half of their sentence. Um, and so, you know, when you zoom in on it, you can look at a, you can get down to the census block level. So if you're curious um, of the, the legacy of incarceration, the, the data is now, is from 2005 to 2009. So it's um, not super current, but, um, you know, you can kind of see the legacy of incarceration in your neighborhood. And we like this framing because you can think, okay, uh, we're not spending this money here in this neighborhood. We're taking people from this neighborhood and spending a million dollars, for example, the one you're hovering over was 2 million just a second yeah. ago um, on offenses. And so, you know, we want people to think that this is, these are resources extracted out of your community and spent elsewhere. Um, they're spent downstate um, in prison towns. They're spent uh, any manner of places where, where people are housed. Think of a Pontiac, Illinois, Joliet. Um, that money, locking people up, goes to, you know, there are some fixed costs, um, but, you know, a lot of it is, is jobs. It's the people who are um, prison guards, prison labor, et cetera, watching over people. Um, so we really want people to understand this. Uh, when you think about there are no resources, state can't be spending money in my community on economic development or on, you know, youth development. Uh, basically, we want to say, look at the money being extracted from your communities. Look no further, right? And then ultimately, we want to push people to a more visionary future about how funding should be distributed and to say, okay, well then, we want to stop incarcerating people and calculate the savings and reinvest that back into the places you've destroyed through this, this policy of mass incarceration. Okay. Um, so our, so you're averaging at that point, you said about $22,000 per year for each inmate. Yeah. Right. And so are these, is this, so that's 500 for Austin, 550 million, 234,592. Is that, what's spent per five year block or is this per year uh that's over the that's that five year block right so okay we're that so we're talking we're talking 110 million and change 
per year coming out of off coming spent on incarcerating people from the Austin neighborhood. Yeah, but to be clear, it's it's not a year for year spending. It's right. Yeah, yeah. You're committed to spending a million dollars over the life of these. The numbers are shocking. <laughs> yeah, completely honest with you. That if you just take these six neighborhoods near West Side, 110 million, 158, 260, 500, 655, 855, 940, 1.5 billion. Yeah. Out of six neighborhoods, just six neighborhoods in Chicago. You're talking about $1.5 billion. What could that money do? Even a fraction of that money, 20% of it, 15% of it, right? 30% of it. If you took that money and reinvested it into those communities for economic development, mental health treatment, drug treatment, all of that. Yep. Yeah, if you go to the intro tab, I think there's a graph where you can look at the top communities. So basically just what you said, you see it right there. Our oh, yeah. West Side communities you're pointing out um, are those first three. It's, um, yeah, and, and to be clear, I think one of our challenges, it, a challenge is, is the fact that, you know, there isn't, so the, the budget of the Illinois Department of Corrections is, is a couple billion. Around this time, it was um, you know, $1.4 billion, the, the entire budget. So it's not like they have that money sitting in a pot to be you know, invested right now. Um, but the way our system is, you're committing to spending that much year over year. And so what happens when you stop sending people in? You can start closing down wings of prison, and you can start whittling away that annual massive budget of the Department of Corrections. And, and then you can start, there's savings year over year that you can reinvest into other things that we know improve neighborhoods. Here is, wow. There is a opportunity here, it would seem to me, with if Lightfoot really wanted to be the game changer, that candidate Lightfoot was supposedly all about, and Pritzker, wanted to be game changers, what if they took 10% of that money, even to just those six West Side communities? So it'd be a fraction of the overall budget of IDOC and reinvested in those communities to see what, what change could happen in five years, how that would affect the rate of people going from that community into IDOC. It's just, those numbers are unbelievably staggering. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's all sorts of things we could be doing to be innovative uh, and visionary about how we're choosing to, to spend money. I think what's difficult for the state, and I guess the city as well, is the, the budget realities are such that, uh, you know, we've got massive debt um, in, in terms of paying pensions. So I think it, it I don't want to be you know, flip and say that it can, it can be easily done because we do have fiscal challenges. But I think it, it takes some really visionary thinking and hard decisions about, you know, stopping locking people up. And over a few years, what are those savings and diverting it back into doing what you're talking about? What are some great approaches to building up neighborhoods? I want to make sure people get this stat. So I'm going to read it just to make sure if they're not seeing it on the screen. 
there were 851 blacks in Chicago with over 1 million committed to prison sentences for imprisoning, imprisoning their residents. So think about that. And here's another one. 121 blacks with over 1 million committed to prison sentences for nonviolent drug offenders. What could that, I mean, even if they didn't, it just, that what that money could be used to get the, the uh, finances of the state back in order, to redevelop, uh, do real economic development, not to help drug treatment, education in these communities. Um, I, I think the analysis here is amazing. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about um, any future plans you may have for it, but it's really, um, it's really pretty staggering. Yeah, agreed. Um, talk about you guys talk about some alternatives. Um, I hope our audience thinks deeply just about how we spend money, and this isn't even this is the tip of the iceberg, ladies and gentlemen. Because let me just give you another stat. For every one of these people incarcerated, just incarcerated, we're not even talking charged. It is uh, the Chicago Council of Lawyers of the Appleseed Fund, they work together, did a, um, did a analysis some years ago where they talked to the clerk of the court's office, Dorothy Brown's office, and they told them that it cost them $2,600 to open up a court file. Wow. So ladies and gentlemen, for every one of the people that are represented in that website and those colors, think you're adding $2,600 for everyone, every of those, every one of those individuals represented there. And that's not in talking the money we spend on police, the 911 center, holding people in Cook County jail, the state's attorney, the public defender, the courts. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important to try to be, to identify, be fair about the, the massive political roadblocks there are to doing anything about this. I'm not saying it lets our politicians off the hook, but as an example, and we write about this in the book, in 2008, uh, then Governor Rod Blagojevich in Illinois planned to close <laughs> down a prison in Pontiac, Illinois, uh, you know, because crime had been declining for about or for over 10 years, and uh, it would save the, save the state money. Um, the entire town rallied, uh, had uh, a parade, um, stormed the Capitol, had a demonstration on the Capitol with thousands of people decked out saying, keep our prison open, um, put, in a, put a massive amount of pressure on the governor, uh, local politicians, representatives also uh, making the argument that this is a lifeblood of the community. It's the jobs themselves might be X millions of dollars for our economy, but the entire ecosystem is billions more in uh, economic benefits to the community. And ultimately that argument carried the day. So what that says is it's okay to keep prisons open and to keep tough on crime policies, keeping them filled because they provide jobs for people who otherwise wouldn't have jobs. And I think, you know, it's, fair to be sympathetic to a place like that that does not have other prospects for jobs, but we need to ask ourselves, is this what prisons are for, just to provide 
jobs for people um, when we know how detrimental they have been. And COVID-19 is laying that bare right now with how much our jails and prisons have been incubators of this illness, more so than any other country in the world because no other country locks up people at the rate we do. Yeah, it's, um, I had a student when I was teaching at UIC working on my PhD classes at the time. I had a student come to me taught criminal justice classes, obviously, and she uh, came to me and said, yeah, I really want you to help us. I'm like, okay, with what? Well, I think it was during this time, we're, they're closing our prison, or they're talking about it. And I'm like, I am so sorry that you're going to lose all those jobs, but that is not something I cannot advocate to keeping a prison open for no other reason than to give you jobs, right? At that point, I'd rather close the prison and just give the people in that community the pay just pay them, right? Pay them for a year or two as they transition and get rid of the prison. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. You know, we, it's not an either or, to my point earlier about us being a black and white reductionist society, jobs or no jobs, you know, crime or safety. Um, there are millions of possible solutions. And I think I live in Chicago, so obviously it's easier for me to care about Chicago neighborhoods. But I also care about Pontiac, Illinois. And I think you know, you don't want those people to be jobless either. And so what are some solutions? Can we think about a tax code that's different that redistributes money to places like the west side of Chicago differently, to places like Pontiac, Illinois differently, and envisions a different scenario for economic development? What would make those places, you know, competitive, functional, and have stronger economies with other viable jobs, not, not just prison labor? Yeah, and I think some of those towns um, are feeling the ramifications of being built around a prison because especially in, co especially in COVID, their family members, their friends are the ones working in those prisons that are incubators for the disease. So these people then are working all day in the incubators and then going home and transmitting it to their family, their friends, their neighborhood, right? So it, there's, I, there, I can't imagine a way for those towns like Pontiac to lock down when you know 30 percent of the workforce or more are working all day in 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 the prison i yeah. don't understand how you would do that so the optimist in me hopes that you know this makes it absolutely clear that it's a lot of people at risk because of our addiction to prisons and jails right and it's the folks you identified you know they're um in our cook county jail here in chicago um you know, there were something like over 300 cases of COVID-19 of just prison staff, or I'm sorry, jail staff. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it was several hundred. Last I looked, it was over 500 detainees who had tested positive and something like 300 plus employees. So this is putting a lot of people at risk. Same for prison towns downstate. Yeah, I, I, I hope there's a, I don't think it has to be either or. Uh, the politicians are good at staging it that way so they can get drum up support on one side or the other. Um, we're not good at economic, we're, we're not good at, we're certainly not good at economic development for communities of color. We're still not great in economic development for poor white communities and poor uh, rural communities of any kind. That's just the way. Let's talk a little bit. I just want to give you a, a couple minutes to talk about the war on neighborhood. What is the, you know, the main central theme you want people to think about and know about from the book? Table's yours. So basically, if you think about the website as calling attention to this issue, the book was a way of zooming in to one of these communities, Austin, which is the West Side community that had the highest uh, amount of sentences, um, to really tell the stories. Because 
you know, this isn't a reductionist either or issue. It's very complicated and nuanced. And so we wanted to tell the stories of what it's like for people who have been impacted in, in many ways by the justice system. So Ryan, my colleague, had done a lot of ethnographic interviews as a part of his PhD dissertation. Um, I had done some interviews with um, folks uh, in the area, young people who are young adults who had been justice system involved at one point. Um, so we wanted people's stories to be central. And so we had um, a few people whose stories are a through line throughout the book about what it was like growing up in that area, um, being involved in you know, drug use or sales. Um, and then we interviewed judges, police officers, uh, community organization uh, leaders um, to talk about the issues, what they see. Um, and so each chapter is a, is a different sort of look at what's happening. We, we talk about the education system and we talk about, um, we zoom out and talk about the broader economy. Um, and we zoom in and we, we talk about uh, drugs a little bit and people's experience, um, why they chose to sell drugs or felt they had to sell drugs. Um, and then the, the sort of family ramifications of coming home from a prison sentence and trying to reconnect with children, family, and the difficulties it presents having a record and having that stigma. Um, so all of this, we wanted, to, we wanted to center the complications that uh, incarceration creates for families and whole neighborhoods and, and really drawn some stories from people and their experience because obviously we're both uh, white men who have not been affected by the justice system. And um, you know, partially, I think we wrote this book because we wanted to communicate this issue to people like us who have the luxury to not have to think or care about mass incarceration because we're not touched by it, right? And so I think that was, that was the overarching theme of the book is to take this complex issue center stories of people affected and try to make it as simple as possible so anyone can understand why it's a problematic policy we have. I used to teach at the University of St. Francis out in Joliet, Illinois, and a, uh, a black student, really smart kid. And I was talking about drugs and impact on neighborhood and policing and everything. And he stayed up after, he stayed after class. And he told me that, you know, I used to be, I'm from Austin. I used to play football. I got a scholarship out to California. It got me out of the neighborhood. But I came back, my mom, closer so she'd come watch me play this is as close as I said I would go I said you don't go back he goes I only go back to talk to schools school children when I'm invited and I only go at 9 a.m it has to be early in the morning I go and I leave and I'm like really you, go, you don't spend time in your mom's or your family he's like never I will never go back I will never spend another night there I'm the only one of my friends that made it out lost a few the rest are going to get out in another year or two because they're locked up he goes, I'm never going, I'm never spending a night back in Austin. And I was like, wow, I've never had to think about that. Right. And he said, it's like my entire family's justice system involved. Right. He goes, so it, it's a miracle that I made it out, but you know, he goes, none of my, none of my fellow students here understand what my life has been like, right. Having to fight through a justice system involved family. All right, one other quick question before we wrap up. Do you, have you noticed over your time in Chicago, as superintendents change, come and go, do you notice a difference between the policing on the street? Not really. And I, you know, admittedly, you would know much more about this than I, I would. I hadn't been involved in the day-to-day -day changes as much or examining them. But one thing that struck me from just a very cursory analysis or high level is 
you know, the more things change, the more they say the same. A lot of the, the tactics, the initiatives, you know, they would come out with a new name uh, every other couple of years. Um, uh, we talk about this in the book too, but all of the, the initiatives involve, you know, either shifting roving units to hotspot areas or violence reduction strategy, which involved basically identifying high level targets that they thought were gonna be at highest risk of offending. And, and essentially enforcement is, is the primary mechanism and arrests uh, of, you know, disproportionate arrests of people of color. So um, I think in recent years, there is an, there's an attempt to be more data driven and use predictive data analytics. I'm skeptical of this and whether it's gonna produce anything different because I think the mechanism is still enforcement. It's still trying to find people, arrest them. And the, once you're involved in the justice system, the chances are you're going to stay involved in the justice system. Yeah, we, um, we have a guest coming up in June 17th, I think, Barry Friedman, Professor Barry Friedman from NYU Law. And he wrote an awesome, amazing, incredible article about disentangling what police do and how to um, parse out what they do to other agencies and entities. And he said the police are basically, they bring law and they bring force. And that's all there. And it doesn't, it isn't a bad thing. That's all they can bring because they're not trained or equipped to do anything else. And right. there may be a time and a place we need that, but in a lot of circumstances, we don't. And when we're sending them into situations where we don't need it, they often are set up to fail. And I, I just asked you that question because we have a new superintendent, David Brown, who, by the way, people can go on YouTube channel and see our podcast and see how he is accused of multiple, uh, not attempts, but multiple um, successful data manipulations around crime statistics that show crime dropping when it wasn't mm -hmm. this time in Dallas. So you should check both on our YouTube channel and our podcast for that. Okay, last question. What would you do if, would you, what, how, what would you imagine doing this website if you had not access to 2005 through 2009 data, but maybe 1980 through 2020 with regular updates. How does this, how does that empower you with this analysis? Yeah, I think, you know, having data over that long period tells a story about how we went from a country that incarcerated 200,000 people to, you know, several million uh, in short order, right? And I think you can start comparing with other trends like um, rising housing prices, income inequality, all these things that are just features of urban life, of rural life, of American life, and how they coincided with this explosion of justice system involved people um, and how you can see the ripple effects and how they last for years. And I think also, you know, on a more positive note, I think you can look at the data and see where we're improving because we have, you know, incarceration has leveled off and has declined. We have a state's attorney that's making some progress and sending fewer people sentencing or prosecuting people uh, at a lesser extent. Um, all of those things are, you know, give, give you a silver lining of hope, but there's so much more work to be done. So I think it's important to hold everybody accountable to say, hey, you know, things are dropping, but they could be dropping much more. So where, where, where do we think we could drop offenses? We could look at state's attorney's data. We could look at sentencing data and say, let's do more here, here, and here. I would like to thank Dan for taking the time to join us and discuss the fascinating website.
Clearly the public has no idea what we spend our failing clearly the public has no idea what we spend on our failing justice system. If they did, I think they'd be much more open to trying alternatives that for the most part have been proven to be less expensive and much more successful at reducing crime and violence. Thanks again for tuning in. If you have ideas or topics for future episodes, our Facebook live interview series, or for content for our YouTube channel, you can paste to our Facebook page. Message us on Twitter at CJPJustProj, P-R-O-J, or leave us a comment on our YouTube posts. Want to support CJP's transparency work and or our original content production? You can become a supporter of CJP at our Patreon page. We'll be back to you soon with a new episode.